Take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. We'll be there together in just a moment. Tonight we continue in our series, our second week in a series entitled Stay the Course, a study in 2 Thessalonians. Last week we looked at the first five verses of chapter 1, and tonight we're going to look at the next five verses. Ours is a day of instant gratification. The God of today is the God of the quick fix. We want what we want and when we want it, and it's most often, Paul, now. For example, when pain comes, we want prompt relief. When wrong occurs, we demand immediate justice. When disease strikes, we want instantaneous healing. When affliction hits, we demand swift retribution. When financial setbacks come, we look for instant cash. And after all, as Christians, we know that God is powerful and God is good. And His Word tells us that He won't hold back any good thing from us. And so we cry out to the Lord, Lord, I am upright. Why aren't you doing what I want? I want it now. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, We want not so much for a father in heaven as we want for a grandfather in heaven of senile benevolence, who, as they say, likes to see young people enjoying themselves. I like how Lewis put that. Sometimes we have this idea that God is, is the one who should just give us every wish and every whim. As Aubrey sang that song, I love the testimony of that song, and probably you, like me, can think of many different moments of when that song has been important to you over the decades and and what was surrounding, what was happening. But the lyric jumped out at me tonight, I've doubted, I've even failed to believe, and still he was faithful. It's not as if that we have done so much for God that he owes us this faithfulness and he's making good on what he owes us. It's the opposite. He has blessed us in spite of what we deserve. See, we want from God a quick fix at times. We don't want a sovereign God who operates outside of our desires, outside of our time frame. We want a God who responds to our every need right now. Most Christians today, at least in America, come to church to worship the lowercase g of a quick fix. Not only do we want God who responds quickly to our needs, but He must move swiftly to bring justice when we are wronged. And I believe God wants to talk to us tonight about how we can stay the course, not only in suffering, as we talked about last week, but how we can stay the course when we are impatient and we want things to happen right now. I don't know if you've ever felt ripped off by someone before. Maybe you've been doing good and they have not recognized it. They have taken it and they've trampled it. Maybe you've poured your life into your marriage and your partner deserted you, deserted the kids, and it seems like their life is going on without a hitch and you are left with all the mess around you. You've worked hard as an employee to do the very best you possibly could, but you're the one they chose to let go because your convictions would not allow you to participate in their quote-unquote business practices that were unethical. Where's the justice in that? You've tried to be faithful in tithing, but you've been hit with a devastating financial setback while your friends who don't 
care for God at all seem to be thriving financially. Where is God in that? Where is his justice? Is he out of touch? Has he abandoned us? Is he out of control? God, the Bible says that you are a God of love, but there's times I'm just not feeling love. You may not have articulated that as your prayer, but if we're honest, we've probably thought that, or at least portions of that, before. And when God doesn't respond quickly to us, discouragement can set in and we are tempted to give up. But Paul challenges the church of Thessalonica and in turn challenges us tonight to stay the course, don't give up, and he gives instructions on how to stay the course when we are impatient. Look with me at 2 Thessalonians verse 5 through 10 of chapter 1. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. Lord, I thank you for the words that we've just read and, and the importance it was not only to the church of Thessalonica. Lord, would you begin to stir in us right now what you want to do in our hearts and minds to not only keep us on course, but to, Lord, help us thrive even in moments when we feel impatient. We're listening, Jesus. Speak to us. Amen. These Thessalonians were doing the same thing that we are tempted to do when, when it seems that God has overlooked the challenge, has overlooked our plight, and the justice doesn't seem to be coming. You see, we read into God's actions when we think He has postponed judgment. We read into that as if He has canceled judgment or He has let go of judgment. Because God didn't act when we thought he should act. We think he's either unwilling or unable to do what needs to be done. But Paul lovingly reminds the people in Thessalonica, and he reminds us tonight, impatience is the evidence that I am not trusting God. It's not that he's not trustworthy. The problem is with me. The problem is not with God. And it's interesting to me that that is the case in so many areas. We discover over and over again that it's not a problem with God, but it's a problem with us and our understanding or lack thereof or our lack of obedience or lack of willingness to trust him. So my problem is basically a lack of trust. Unbelief feeds my fears feeds my doubts, and very often it manifests itself in impatience. So if I lack faith, and that is the root of my impatience, then the increase or addition of more faith will produce more patience in my life. 
The Bible tells us that patience is the evidence or it's the fruit of a life led and controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we get. It's something that is developed in us over time. Have you ever prayed for patience? You say, God, give me patience and I want it now. It doesn't happen that way. There's this old phrase, I don't know why we say it, it says, don't pray for patience. You know what happens when you pray for patience? Anybody hear this? What do you get when you pray for patience? You get troubles or tribulation. That's what's told to us. You know what I thought? If you don't pray for patience, you get tribulation, you get troubles. You might as well pray for patience and let the Lord bring patience. It's not a question of our desire for patience that brings problems. It's the blessing of patience that the Lord brings to us in the midst of the inevitable problems. As we talked about this morning, Jesus tells us in John 16, In this world you will have trouble. Bank on it. But take heart. Be of courage. For I have overcome the world. See, Paul reminds us in this passage that patience is developed by enduring persecution and is gained by eternal perspective. Those are the two things we're going to look at with the balance of our time. This enduring persecution and this eternal perspective. How do we beat this impatient thought that comes up inside of us? It comes through this persecution and it comes through this perspective that God wants to use in our life. Let's look at both a little bit closer. First, Paul reminds us that faith and patience are developed in the middle of persecution. Patience through persecution. The first life lesson I believe that we see in this passage I want us to touch on is that God is the judge, not me, not you. In verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right, we just read. All of this refers back to verse 4, all the persecutions and trials that you are enduring. See, Caesar hated the Christians. And the context in which we find this passage is there was great persecution against the Christians. He hated them because they gave allegiance first to God, which meant they didn't give allegiance first to him. So he did everything he could to destroy them through fear, through terror, through persecution. The gruesome beheadings that we have witnessed over the last number of months and years by Islamic terrorists seemed like nothing compared to what was happening in persecution of that day. Torment upon torment upon torment. Persecution that Caesar inflicted on these first century Christians was intense. Some of them were ready to take matters into their own hands. God did not seem to be addressing this great inequality, this great tribulation and they wanted to do something about it no doubt like moses saw something that needed to happen and he was going to take care of it in his own strength when he took that man out and said i'm going to bring swift judgment to you paul reminds them that god is the only right judge and just because his judgment is delayed here on earth doesn't mean that his judgment is wrong you see It's right at this point that another evidence creeps up of our lack of trust in God. You see, that is unforgiveness. Just as my impatience reveals my lack of trust in God, so does my unforgiveness, it reveals my lack of trust in God's judgment. We need to hear that again. 
just as my impatience reveals my lack of trust in God's faithfulness, so my unforgiveness reveals my lack of trust in God's judgment. When I hang on to unforgiveness, what I'm saying is, God, I I can't let them off the hook. I've got to make sure that they pay. I'm going to hold them accountable, and and I'm not going to trust you to be the one to be their judge. For I know what you're about. Grace and mercy, says Jonah. Maybe us. But it's this impatience rooted in a lack of trust in his faithfulness, a lack of trust in his judgment that can bring pain. Think about this application with me. Forgiving others shows that I truly trust God. When I withhold forgiveness, I'm trying to play judge and jury over that person. That's God's territory. On the other hand, if I trust in his goodness and his righteousness, I can leave all the settling of accounts to him. That's not letting them off the hook. There's a big difference between giving forgiveness and and giving trust. Forgiveness is freely given. Trust needs to be earned. I'm not talking about being a doormat. I'm not talking about not protecting yourself from ongoing harm over and over again. But friend, this unforgiveness is what can lead us to this great impatience that can cause us to want to quit and not stay the course. Paul says, don't waver from the course. Forgiving others shows that I truly trust God. That's not letting them off the hook. It's putting them in God's hands. And there's a huge difference. Look at Paul's counsel to the church in Rome. Here's the message paraphrase from Romans 12, 19. Don't insist on getting even. That's not for you to do. I'll do the judging, says God. I'll take care of it. Think of someone who ripped you off. Someone who hurt you, who wounded you. And it appears that they have gotten away with it. God says, trust me. Trust me to bring justice into their life. I'll take care of it. You stay focused on my will for your life. Leads me to the second life lesson I see in this verse. It's this, suffering leads me, leads you into the kingdom of God. Look at the last part of verse 5. As a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Two weeks ago, we observed that when someone is going through suffering, we need to remind them of God's great purpose for their life. The great purpose, even in that suffering, it's to make them more like Christ, to make them fit for His kingdom. Listen, friend. We gain entrance to the kingdom of heaven by faith and grace alone in Jesus Christ. But the rights and privileges of the kingdom only come to us through this suffering that Paul is talking about here. Now, we'd never want to set up some kind of initiation or some kind of entrance or some kind of leading into the kingdom of God this way. We'd want something way easier, more palatable. But the Lord has chosen to use persecution, trials, and to bring into us a forming to be like Christ. Why? Why does God want to take so long? Why does He use these things? Jot this down. God is more interested in my character than my comfort. Some of the things that we get so riled up about, we think that God doesn't care about. It's not that He doesn't care about it. He has a different priority over our character, over our 
growth in Him than just what feels good in the moment. There's some things that we carry the perspective in, and we can see this, and we will subject ourselves to some temporary pain to have some long-term benefits. Some of us have surgeries that are coming up. Something isn't working right. Something is hurting. Something is wrong. And we know that if we go under the knife of a skilled surgeon who knows what they have been trained to do can bring some momentary pain to bring some long-term health and healing. The Lord says, I'm more interested in your character than your comfort. Don't let impatience get the best of you. Stay the course. Trust my hand. Listen to these insightful words from F.B. Meyer. He writes, God has his set times. It's not for us to know them. Indeed, we cannot know them. We must wait for them. If God had told Abraham and Haran that he must wait for all those years until he pressed promised child would be put on his bosom, his heart would have failed the Lord. So in gracious love, the length of the weary years was hidden, and only as they were nearly spent When there was only a few months more to wait, then God told him according to the time that he set that Sarah will have a son. Meyer concludes, if God told you on the front end how long you would have to wait to find the fulfillment of your desire, of the pleasure that you're seeking in him, of the dream that he's given to you, you may lose heart. You grow weary in well-doing. So would I. But he doesn't, he just says, wait. I keep my word. I'm in no hurry. In the process of time, I'm developing you to be ready for the promise. End quote. How do you stay the course when you're impatient? Remember that God is more interested in your character than your comfort. Understand that He's using persecution to make you more like Christ, to prepare you for the final judgment. And to look at that, it takes a perspective that only comes from Him. Let's take a couple moments to look at that. Patience through perspective. Verse 6 through 10 speak of this. Oftentimes we're impatient because we only see part of the picture or just a short distance into the future. So Paul shares with this church who is impatient. He says, friends, you need to hang on to God's perspective on all this apparent injustice that you're going through. God will set the record straight in his time he will right every wrong here's a life lesson for us through this passage payday may not be today but payday is someday before we dive into this before we started i (laughs) was going to share this but my mind got forgetful we're going to get ready to talk about hell and i got a fire of the lord in my gut tonight so we've got fire I don't know if anybody has brimstone. We just may have some hell, fire, and brimstone here together. Those of us who've been around the things of God for a while, we hear of sermons or we hear of teaching and we hear of these things of hell, fire, and brimstone and we have different images that come into our mind. Maybe an image of, of one who stands here and proclaims this gloom and doom message. But it's interesting to me that Paul doesn't hold back and he talks clearly and plainly. We're going to see about hell here and clearly and pain, uh, plainly about suffering and the, the fire of judgment. And yet it's meant to be an encouragement. How could this be? How could this help us through this impatience? It is a perspective that God wants to give to us. It's this. Payday may not be today, but it is someday. Because 
our merciful God delays his judgment of sin, giving time for us to repent, doesn't mean that he's not a God of justice. Make no mistake, one day his mercy will give way to his swift judgment. Paul puts it this way in verse 7. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. I guarantee you there won't be anybody mocking Jesus on that day of judgment. Let me ask you, if you knew that Jesus was coming tomorrow, how would you spend the rest of your night tonight? We know that we'd want to prepare and get our house in order. And Jesus is saying through Paul, live that way. Live in such a way that you are ready for that final day. That's called keeping an eternal perspective on life. Someone gave me some excellent advice when it looks at living life. They said this, plan your life as if Jesus isn't coming back for a long time. But live your life as if he's coming back today. It's not to say that we're not responsible and we don't uh, think and plan for the future. That's fine to plan that way. But we live with short accounts. We live our life with the understanding that we may not have much time. And there is comfort in that. You see, a life lesson that comes from these verses on perspective is this. When Christ's return, it will not only be payday at some day when it comes, but God will afflict those who are comfortable and comfort those who are afflicted. What do you mean? You see, Paul goes back to these verses 6 through 10, and he is contrasting what God's day of judgment will be like for those who repent and those who are unrepentant. Contrasting this day of judgment will mean for the repentant and the unrepentant these things. First, judgment for the unrepentant. Let's look at that. Paul reminds us that you can't shake your fist at God and get away with it. Because of his merciful justice that is delayed here on earth, doesn't mean he won't have judgment. Be certain it is coming. He writes in verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. God is just. He alone is qualified to be judge of every man's heart. He knows their motivation. We don't. He sees the big picture. We don't. Here's the principle. God keeps immaculate records. We don't have to carry the weight and this impatience and and this, this idea of unforgiveness of all those who've wronged us or for the things that haven't happened for us. He sees it all. He records it all. He has an impressive database with a detailed record of every person's life. It includes every deed, every word, every thought. Friend, you and I or no one on the face of this earth slide anything by God. We live in a time when our concept of justice, it's jaded. We've witnessed high profile cases where it appears that you work the system long enough, hard enough with enough money, you could avoid justice. It doesn't work that way in God's courtroom. You can't hire a slick attorney to manipulate the facts to get you acquitted. All of us have sinned. All of us are guilty. All of our thoughts, all of our actions put us on death row. The record is without any dispute. You could disagree with that, 
You can dismiss that as intolerant speech. You can rationalize it away, but none of that changes the fact that payday is someday. Now, we may say, it's not for me, I'm a Christian. Maybe not, but maybe it is. What do you mean? Look at verse 8. Paul clarifies who the unrepentant are in verse 8. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Notice that he doesn't say that he will punish those who don't call themselves Christian. He doesn't say he will punish those who don't have membership in a local church somewhere. He doesn't say he will punish those who don't attend church very often. No, God will punish those who don't know him. Not those who don't know about him, but who don't know him. Implying there must be a personal relationship. If God isn't your best friend, if God isn't your first love, then you don't really know him. You may know some things about him, but you don't know him. Well, how do I know if I'm truly a Christian in this context? Paul spells it out in the second part of verse 8. Those who do not know God do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jot this down. Some application for you and me. I don't really know God if I don't obey Him. Circle that phrase. Look at it. Paul is saying the defining difference between those who receive God's judgment and those who receive God's grace is in their trust and faith in Him that's evidenced by their obedience. Jesus' words in Matthew 7 are paraphrased this way in the message. Verse 21 through 23 of the message reads like this. Knowing the correct password, saying Master, Master, or Lord, Lord, for instance, isn't going to get you anywhere with me. What is required is a serious obedience, doing what my Father's will is. I can see it now. At the final judgment, thousands stirring up toward me and saying, Master, we preached the message. We banished and bashed the demons. Our God-sponsored projects had everyone talking. And do you know what I'm going to say? You missed the boat. All you did was use me to make yourself important. You don't impress me one bit. You're out of here. Eugene Peterson paraphrases Jesus' words. Friend, don't be deceived today that just saying that you believe in Jesus, that's not going to work on the judgment day. Just have prayed some prayer for fire insurance is not what's going to cut it on judgment day. The evidence of a saving faith by grace and faith alone is a life of obedience. Okay, Brady, what in the world does it have to do with being impatient? The Lord wants to give us a perspective. That what he is doing, he the great equalizing of all the injustices of this world is coming. It's not yet, but it is coming, and we can bank on it. Paul gives to us a glimpse of what hell is like. We don't want to think about hell. But I tell you, hell is a real place. It's a horrible place. And the truth is, most people in our world are heading straight there because of the decisions they're making with God's gift of grace we don't like to think about it but it doesn't change the truth some may joke about hell around us and say well it's going to be a big party that's where all my friends are going so if all my friends are there i don't want to go to heaven make no mistake there's going to be no party in hell 
There's going to be no comfort found in someone else who is lost around you. Look at verse 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord, from the majesty of His power. Paul's telling us two things about hell here. First, hell is a place of eternal torment. Second, utter loneliness. Notice the NIV says everlasting destruction. This isn't just annihilation. Annihilation is this incredible pain for a moment, then it's over and then there's nothing. Hey friends, in hell, people will be crying out and begging for annihilation, but there will be no end in sight, no relief, only the unbearable torture forever and ever and ever with no end. Try to relive the most intense pain you've ever had in your life. Increase it by a hundredfold and then imagine it never ever going away. That's the glimpse that Paul is giving into this eternal separation from God. But that kind of everlasting destruction pales in comparison to the second, he says, of this utter and complete loneliness. We take for granted the presence of God in this life. His Spirit is constantly wooing us to Him, convicting us, encouraging us, empowering us. But hell is the only place where God's presence is not there. There will be no such comfort, no encouragement, no wooing. There will be absolute separation and make no mistake. Way worse than any flame of fire or physical pain whatsoever. This complete separation from God is what makes hell, hell. The good news is, we don't have to go to hell. Paul is actually speaking words of encouragement to all this injustice. And he says, hey, there will be a great settling of accounts. It is coming. God is going to use this persecution. He's going to use this perspective to give you encouragement to stay the course. The perspective is this. This life is very short compared to the next life. Do in this life what counts in the next. To those who are repentant, there's encouragement for the repentant. Paul contrasts those who have coddled their sin and have done their own thing and realize their need, compared to those who realize their need for God and who have forsaken their sin. He, He contrasts these two and compares them. Look at verse 6 again. And give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When I have the assurance, when you have the assurance that God's in control of my life and my life is in His hands, We can relax. And these earthly human tendencies to be impatient and to allow anxiety to come over us can melt away in the perspective that justice is coming. And you and I won't get what we deserve by our trust in Him. He will by grace give us what we don't deserve. See, you and I, I can relax in the promise of God. Trusting in Christ and obeying His will really takes this monkey off of our back of this idea of impatience. It brings renewed hope in the midst of trials. Just knowing that relief, knowing that it's on its way, is what can give us strength to stay the course. And when will the relief come? Paul says, verse 10, the first part, On the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people, And to be marveled at among all those who have believed. He's given us a glimpse of hell, but now he gives us a glimpse into heaven. He tells us two things here on heaven. Heaven is a place of eternal glory and also a place of marvelous reunions. 
in stark contrast to hell, which is a place of eternal torment. Heaven is a place of eternal glory that will be basking in the glory of the Lord. The great thing is that those who have been redeemed from a life of sin share in Christ's glory. God will be glorified when all heaven sees His amazing grace that He's accomplished in taking a sinful, self-centered soul like you and me and transformed us into the likeness of Christ. There will be glory upon glory upon glory given to the Lord and we partake in that glorious celebration. We will praise and give Him glory for all of eternity. Secondly, in stark contrast to the utter loneliness of hell, There will be marvelous reunions in heaven. Paul says, Christ will marvel at among those who have believed. But most of us, we have already experienced someone that we love who has gone on before us, who is there waiting for us, and there will be a great reunion with them. But as good as that will be, as the songwriter says, it's when I see Jesus face to face, that will be heaven for me. Just like hell's greatest punishment is separation from God, heaven's greatest blessing is this proximity and closeness with the Son, with the Father, with the Spirit. See, Paul is giving this perspective to help us beat the battle of impatience. So how do we apply this? The most important decision you and I will ever make is to trust Jesus Christ. Remember, it's not if you call yourself a Christian, it's not if you join a church, it's not any of those things, those are good things, but it's in what you have done with trusting Jesus Christ, trusting Him in all things, even the things that seems like He is slow and He's not moving on time, trusting His faithfulness, trusting even in His justice that we can forgive and not try to hold people on the hook and say, God, I'm going to let you settle the accounts. The key to eternal life, abundant life, is for us to forsake our sin, to demonstrate our trust in Jesus by being obedient to Him. In verse 10, the final part, Paul concludes, this includes you because you believed our testimony to you. In other words, Paul sums this up and says, believing means trusting and trusting means obedience. How can you stay the course when you're impatient? Trust the Lord. How do I trust the Lord? Be obedient to the Lord. Even when it doesn't seem things are happening now. Persecution and perspective lead us to a place where he could make us more like Christ. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word to us tonight. Would you remind us deep in our hearts that the evidence of true saving grace is our willingness to be obedient with your help, with your strength to what you're saying to us. Lord, would you remind us tonight that this truth is definitely for us. I believe there's some here that are going through suffering, who are going through persecution, those who need to be reminded that even in their impatience, you can bring good about for us. You can help us stay the course by recognizing that this persecution is giving us a perspective on how great life will be with you in eternity. Lord, would you also remind us that this truth is not just for us, but it's for someone else. 
Would you help us as we inhale and we take into our being this nourishment that you're giving us through your word? And would you help us to speak out the reason for our hope? That when we see things in our life and the lives of others and people who are suffering and people who are facing great injustice, Lord, may we not respond by trying to get even, not respond by trying to teach or prompt or tell them how to look out for number one, but would we, Lord, choose to share the perspective we have on heaven and on hell, the one you've given to us. That judgment doesn't seem to happen in the time that we want when we've been afflicted. But Lord, would you help us see that your judgment is coming. You will make all things right. Ultimately, for those who trust in you, you will give us not only the blessings, you'll give us what we don't deserve, the grace over and over again in our life. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.